Right now on Fast, the commodity crumble from crude's plunge below $100 a barrel to copper's 20-plus percent slide in the last month. What is behind this drop in prices for everything from wheat to lumber to you name it? And could it really be a sign we're past peak inflation? Plus, Boeing taking off. The aerospace giant posting its best aircraft order numbers in over three years, and the stock popping more than 15 percent in the last month. But can you trust this rebound? And later, one tech CEO's big-time warning shares a service now cratering after the CEO tells her Jim Cramer he sees some serious headwinds ahead, the potential ripple effects on the sector straight ahead. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq Market Site. On the desk tonight, Karen Feinerman, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, and Steve Grasso. We start off with the great energy breakdown. Crude oil tumbling more than 8% today, closing at its lowest level in three months. The drop putting pressure on oil stocks, too. Every member of the XLE ETF down today, with Apache, EOG, and Hess leading the way lower. But it's not just energy on the decline. Take a look at the moves in ag prices. Copper, nickel, the metals, all down 20% or more in just the past month. This as we await the latest reading on CPI out tomorrow before the bell. Economists expect consumer prices rose nearly 9% in June, the fastest pace since December 1981. Amazing. Amazing. But does the recent commodity price drop suggest we truly hit and maybe passed mm-hmm. peak inflation? Guy. It would appear that way, and I'm sure the Fed's breathing a collective sigh of relief. I'm sure the administration is as well. I don't think that's, in fact, the case. I think what the commodity market is saying is you have this global slowdown. I st- Listen, the crude market has surprised me a great deal. Maybe I stayed bullish too long. Clearly, I did. The OIH is down 38%, I think, over the last maybe 12 or 13 trading days, which is not commensurate nearly, I don't think, with the move in crude oil. That being said, you have a couple of these names report next week, Slumberjay on the 22nd. And I think the Biden administration, Joe Biden's the president, Biden's going to Saudi Arabia. I think that meeting will be the bottom of the crude market. I think we're going to rally from here. But I'll say this. Steve Grasso has been steadfast and correct, thinking the crude's going to go lower from a lot higher levels than we are now. Yeah. And you still stick by that, Steve? I, I do. I think that I think we have reached peak inflation. I think the CPI tomorrow, people are going to look through that and it is backward looking. So I don't know if it's going to capture all of the lower prices we've seen. If it doesn't, I think that people will say, well, next month it's going to be a lot lower. That's going to shock to the to the downside. What, what I think is we'll have a window for a rally. Guy talked about forty two hundred. I don't I, you know, I'm not sure we can get there at this point, but I think Guy would agree with this. The market does not give you this many times to go sideways. What I mean by that is we've been hovering around this 36, 38 and a half hundred level in the S&P. So I think we're due to break out or break down. My opinion is we get a relief rally and then the floor drops out when we see that companies cannot earn as much as they were earning and margins are contracting. Karen. So I agree with everything Steve said about how the CPI print tomorrow. If it's hot, people will say, well, it's going to cool off because we've seen all the things you talked about at the very top of the show. Those aren't fully in the numbers and won't be till July. I also think that it's peaking because I think demand has peaked. And I did think that the supply chain issues would be improved by now more than they are. They're not really. But I think that will also alleviate some of the pressure. So I do think we're seeing peak inflation. That's not to say, however, though, that the Fed is off the hook completely. Right. Peak inflation and this two percent mandate are, you know, miles and miles apart. So I think we do get a relief rally if the numbers cool. We don't get hurt too badly if the numbers hot. But I think that we're still going to see the Fed 
Titan, maybe 75. I don't even know that it matters, 50 or 75. The question is, when do they stop? And I think a cooler number allows them to stop sooner. The market obviously will love that. Yeah, we got some breaking news. But Tim, I want to get your um, quick thoughts before you get to it. Well, fascinating day in terms of the yield curve, too. So it's telling you that, that we feel better about inflation out. We also feel worse about the economy, uh, the inversion of twos, tens, but even from one year uh, out to 30s. You know, we're going to straighten out Tim's mic. We've, we've got some uh, hits as audio. In the meantime, let's get the, to the breaking news here on Twitter. Julia Borson's got the details. Julia. Melissa, Twitter is suing Elon Musk in Delaware court for violating the $44 billion merger agreement that he made with the company. Twitter is seeking a court order to force Musk to close the acquisition at the $54.20 a share that they agreed upon. Just looking through the filing here, um, it says, quote, Musk apparently believes that he, unlike every other party subject to Delaware contract law, is free to change his mind, trash the company, disrupt its operations, destroy stockholder value, and walk away. Going on to say this repudiation follows a long list of material contractual breaches by Musk that have cast a pall over Twitter and its business. Um, Twitter brings this action to enjoin Musk from further breaches, to compel Musk to fulfill his legal obligations, and to compel consummation of the merger upon satisfaction of the few outstanding conditions. So I think what's really interesting here, Melissa, is not only are they saying they're trying to close the deal, at the 54.20 price, but they are laying the groundwork to look for damages, payments of damages, as well as that $1 billion break in fee if it does not go uh, towards a full closure of the deal. So, so as expected, the suit has been filed, and here we go in the next phase of this Twitter Musk drama. Uh, as the drama turns. Um, Julia, thank you. Dr- Julia Borston's like a soap opera here at this point. But Karen, you've been trading the soap opera. <laughs> yes. um, and the stock is ticking higher in the aftermarket. And this right. after a 4% gain in the regular session. So pretty much the way you, you gamed it out to be. What, what's your next move here? Right. So my next move is I think this will read very, very well. As I said last night, this is the A-team. Not, there are plenty of A-teams, but this is the A-team. It's going to be very compelling. I do think they have the better side of the argument. So I think it's going to read very, very well. The stock will trade up. Then, you know, so I have these very short dated options. I'll probably look to sell those. I think that the next event is either the response by Musk's team, which I think will be good. I think this will be better, what we're going to see tonight or tomorrow. And I think then after, also we have earnings which we talked about last night. I don't think those will be good or memorable and Twitter should do everything they can to just pretend they didn't really happen, which they'll try to downplay it, I'm sure. But I think the compelling argument is that Musk will need to close. Mm-hmm. It's Delaware. Who knows? Court, anything can happen. But I think that's the most likely outcome. So at the moment, I'm staying long. This could change tomorrow if it trades really well. Yeah, up 1% in the after-hour session, Guy. She's done it masterfully, Karen, in terms of trading this. And this is from the day that this announcement was made, however many months ago. Both Karen and Dan said, you know, you got to fade this thing. It's not going to happen. That's proven to be correct. So these calls will pay off. The only concern, obviously, is duration. But you know what? I don't think it matters because I think if there's shorts out there in the stock, they're almost forced to cover by definition as we start to get this news. So good for Karen. I think she should absolutely stay with this trade. Tim, I think we've got your mic issues uh, worked out in time to get your thoughts on Twitter here. Well, I, I think the positive news is that, you know, there's no more negative news coming in the short term. I, I think we've, we've worked through uh, all of the fallout from the price. Remember, it traded up 
uh, near that 54 level, and it stayed there for four to five weeks. So um, the fact that you had priced in a whole lot of deal unwind, uh, we priced in the dynamics around what has been really a lack of another bid in the market, the failure of, of management to, to monetize their business and to really uh, make their more excitement around it. I, you know, I just think this is a stock that, that really has a lot to prove in the short term, but that um, unless you believe it has to be tied to the NASDAQ in terms of underperformance overall for tech and therefore it's got to move lower, I, I think you've, you've left a lot of bad news uh, and got it out in the open. Uh, so now the stock is at 1.3%. Steve Grasso, you would have thought what was good for Twitter might be a negative or pressure on Tesla shares, but we didn't see that in today's session or in the aftermarket session. Yeah, I think ultimately it will be, but I don't think he's, gonna, he's going to be forced to honor the deal. I think he'll just be forced to, to pay the billion dollars, uh, the breakup fee. He's not going to be forced to pay the original price or, you know, or somewhere in the middle. But uh, I think to pick up where Tim left off, the only thing this puts in, in focus to me is the inadequacies of the Twitter stock. So ultimately, you're left with the stock that was not able to monetize when they should have been able to. And you're back with the bots being the, the centralized point of conversation, which is a negative for Twitter, no matter how you slice it. So you could see a relief rally. I like that Karen is probably going to tie up loose ends uh, on a bounce, but I wouldn't be there for long term. Karen. It's interesting. I think the, one of the most valuable assets that Twitter has is this lawsuit. Hmm. It, yeah. Yes. It, yeah. Truly. Because Every, where would it be without it? Elon right? Musk would probably walk, right? And then it would trade to where it should be. I don't know, 25 or whatever. So that's, you know, 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. To me, it is, it's not about Twitter, the company. It's only about Delaware. That's it. That's the whole story here. Wow. All right. Well, we got a milestone in the currency markets today that we want to talk about. The euro hitting parity with the U.S. dollar for the first time in 20 years. Let's bring in Jens Nordvig, founder and CEO of Exante Data. Uh, and Jens, you think parity isn't the last stop here? It's going to go through. Well, we have an extremely unusual situation on our hands in Europe. Right? We have a war right next to the EU. We have uh, Russia that is essentially trying to create as much pain as it can for the European economy uh, deliberately. It's not a normal situation, right? And, and the euro is trading accordingly, not normal. Uh, it's 20 years ago since we were here last time. Uh, last time it was because some very special capital flows. This time around, there's a very fundamental reasons why we're here. So there's not really any good reason to fade it uh, uh, unless we see something new on the energy front. Jens, it's Tim. How about the dollar-yen component of, of the dollar's move? Because BOJ has been missing in action, uh, claiming they see zero inflation there. And while the, docs, the dollar basket is certainly 60% euro, uh, the move in, in dollar-yen has been extreme. I, I'm just curious if you think that's going to give ground. Yeah, so, so if you look at this year, initially, uh, the dollar was strong because the Fed was hawkish and a lot of uh, currencies that were very sensitive to Fed policy moved a lot, such as dollar-yen. In the last couple of weeks, we've started to see something different. Dollar-yen is starting to stabilize a little bit. And what you're seeing is that it's the growth-sensitive currencies, especially some EM currencies, that are taking a major, major hit. So we're in a transition phase. The dollar has been strong through both phases, but it's strong against different currencies. And we're, we're having something that smells a bit, a bit like an EM currency crisis now, uh, really for the first time in a long time. Yeah, that was going to be my question, Jens. Emerging markets, obviously, are going to get 
eviscerated on the back of something like this. EEM is going, I think, from 60 down to current levels over the course of about a year and a half. I mean, how does that play out? Because, quite frankly, it can't be bullish here back in the United States at a certain point. Yeah, so, so I, think, I think what worries me about this cycle, right, is that normally when we have significant uh, pressure on asset prices, we have somebody is going to come in and help, right? We are used to the global central banks coming in and helping or China coming in and helping. China is trying, but not very successfully to get something going in China. And uh, then you look at all the global central banks, they're still in tightening mode. We're not going to have like a, a big, big pivot from central banks like soon, right? Maybe we'll have something later this year. But for now, the central banks are kind of forced to stick to a, a hawkish tone because the inflation is so high. So that's what's worrying that this could be a pretty drawn out situation with not really any clear catalyst for relief, I would say in the next couple of months. Are we going to start talking, Jens, about, uh, I don't know what the way today you refer to, uh, you know, pigs. Um, you know, once upon a time, we talked about the pig countries uh, and their debt loads. And I'm wondering if that becomes an issue once again here. Yeah, so, uh, so we've already seen that the sovereign bond spreads in Europe have, have widened out pretty uh, meaningfully this year. And, and the ECB is preparing a certain tool. Uh, to, to fight that already, right? So this is already a concern. And as long as the ECB is in tightening mode, uh, which will be the case as long as the inflation is, it doesn't look like it's coming down very materially, that's going to be an issue. And that's, that's also something that was different. Like 20 years ago, when the euro was down at these levels, we didn't have sovereign bond spreads uh, blowing out. It was actually a pretty orderly decline all along. So from that perspective, this move here is, is quite a bit more concerning than the one we had 20 years ago. Wow. Jens, good to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jens Nordvig, uh, Exante. Um, Tim, I'll go to you since you're the ambassador. <laughs> when it comes to the EM, when yes. it comes to, um, you know, parts of Europe, where are you most concerned about right now? Well, I'm, I'm very concerned about Europe and, and only two other times in the history is uh, inflation adjusted. Has dollar ever been this strong against all of its core trading partners? 2002. So where Jens is referring to and back to 1985. But but those are moments when something uh, was breaking. And, and so we're at a place here where the dollar is going to force pain. And, and although a lot of EM currencies had made adjustments and they are floating freely and have not been afraid to already revalue multiple times in the last five years. I mean, look at the Mexican peso. Look at you know, look at levels on the Brazilian real. Look at you know, forget the, the Russian ruble. Look at the Turkish lira. I mean, these are these are uh, conditions where we've seen this over the last four or five years. But um, there's no question to me, Europe's pain is something we're just getting going. And we talk so much about the currency translation into this earnings season, but we forget about the EU as the second largest economic uh, zone in the world and, and, and the impact on, on multinationals and what it means. And again, I think we are going to hear this from pharma companies. I think we are going to hear this from companies who rely on Europe, not just because of the, the currency dynamics. So these are extreme levels on the dollar. Two other times in history, inflation adjusted. You should be concerned. And yes, as an EM guy, uh, I don't think this is a, a moment that you're ready to start buying. Steve? Uh, when you look at two stocks uh, that stick out for me, so you're, you're going to see money flows uh, into U.S. dollar. That means it's going to get worse. And if you look at Capri, Capri's cost basis is in euros, but they sell in USD. That and Trinseo, two names I own. I guess you should look over your portfolio and see what stocks you own have cost basis in euros and sell in U.S. dollar. And that's a right way trade that you want to be in.
Makes sense to me, Melms. I mean, I think Steve looks great in all the Capri Holdings attire, number I, I one. I'm going to say Capris. So. Those as well. But, you know, okay. I think it's a bigger, it's, it's just much bigger than individual stocks. I mean, Steve is right in terms of those names, but this is a big deal. Now, I think what might happen is, you know, these numbers come out not as hot as people think. You get a relief rally, maybe on the back of bank earnings. If the market does rally, I think the dollar will sell off. And that will assuage some of these concerns. I think that will be short-lived. I think the dollar will be continue to go higher from here in the weeks to come. So what I think about is uh, companies, when they report and they have this FX hit, right? We saw Microsoft is sort of mm-hmm. one of the, the sort of flagship ones to do it. Sometimes the market doesn't seem to care. They right. just sort of back it out. And but sometimes they, they do. do. <laughs> now they do. They really do. And so I think, you know, Steve's point about looking, what do you own? Where do they, where do they source? And where do they sell? So I think it's something like Target. They source somewhat overseas, and they sell here. So that's better. Walmart also sources a lot overseas, but they have more of a mixed um, where they sell. Mm-hmm. So, so repatriating those lesser dollars when they, when they sell overseas. So I don't know. I feel like in a good tape, market doesn't care, but now they will. Coming up, we're diving into retail as Amazon Prime Day kicks off. So which retailers should you be checking out? Former Walmart U.S. CEO Bill Simon is breaking down his take on the retail landscape. That interview is ahead. But first, Boeing shares gaining altitude in today's session. The delivery numbers that had investors soaring into the stock. We've got the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Boeing surging nearly 7.5% today after the company reported 51 airplane deliveries in June, the biggest number it has seen since March 2019. The stock, though, is down almost 27% this year, and the company still faces an order backlog of more than 4,000 aircraft as of June's end. Tim, what do you make of this run? What are you doing with it? Well, it's it's a relative victory. Again, you're going back to March 2019. So this is a pre-COVID reference. This is also uh, up about 38% year over year. Um, the, the beleaguered airline maker with nothing really exciting uh, coming down the pike in terms of innovation. It's really about rectifying max, max certification and, and the issues. I think the issues around certification and, and their being more cautious on the headline is more representative of Boeing having a very different tone to their public communications uh, since the max and since dave calhoun took over this is what they do they're at least trying to sound as if uh, they are not calling the shots anymore which is how they've always sounded throughout history so uh, look at the stock it's up uh, 35 percent off of those lows it's back above the 50 the charts encouraging uh, still a lot to prove but this was very important for the airline sector obviously delta reports tomorrow uh, they've kind of given you a guide on where these numbers are going to be i don't think major surprises and i think airlines have been overdone to the downside Yeah, 50 airplane orders, one for the month of June, 49 were max. Die. That's a positive. It is a positive. And if you look at just, if you want to get technical with the charts, you look at the low we made in March of 2020, and you look at the recent low that Boeing just made. Tim spoke to it in terms of the rally we've seen off that low. You have a nice little double bottom here to trade against. I think at least for the first time in a very long time, Boeing looks like you play from the long side. If you want to go downstream, Spirit Aerosystems, SPR, I think that actually sets up really well into their earnings, I think, late next week. I was sort of surprised when we threw up the uh, forward P.E. on the on the chart there. Fifty. Fifty, Karen. Think of all the stocks that trade well below 50 mm-hmm. on a forward basis. Yes, but you got to think their earnings are going to ramp up dramatically. Oh, so that would right? shrink. 
Yes. One would hope that. One would hope. Right. Or, uh, or they got to cure cancer and do the suit, the max, the 737 max. <laughs> yeah. Steve, where do you stand on Boeing or the airlines? I'm bullish on, on both Boeing and the airlines. You heard the commentary from American today. I think that uh, when, if anyone has traveled, you see the airports are packed. I think uh, it's a testament to how successful Boeing has been because I thought they were just going to have to change the name of this plane. I still look when I'm on one. I still do get you? a little nervous when I'm on one, to be honest. I do. Have and you I get nervous off? when I'm on have one. You, have you booked based on it no. being a max? No. Okay. I, uh, well, no, wait, wait. I, I have done that in the beginning of this where they first started getting back in the air where I have switched flights. I would be arrested if I tried to get off one once I was on one, though. So I haven't done that, but I have, I have booked around it. I'm bullish on both. I think people still have money to spend until they don't, and they'll spend it on travel. Can you I, imagine sitting next to Steve? He's, no. He thinks he's, he's on whatever plane. Like and then he's nice, like, ah, in this yeah. after he wipes down everything with Clorox wipes. I mean, that was right. a fun flight. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Prime for success? Or will this be a delayed delivery? Amazon Prime Day kicking off. But it's not the only retailer dishing out the deals. The Retail Roundup is next. Plus, service serving up fear. Shares of ServiceNow, a real buzzkill. The details on the CEO's second half warning. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Amazon kicking off its Prime Day event today. Best Buy, Macy's, and Target also holding their own events. This is retailers face an inventory overflow and rising inflation. So can these days of discounts really help? Let's bring in former Walmart U.S. CEO Bill Simon to discuss this. He also serves on the Darden Restaurants and Haynes Brands boards. Bill, great to have you with us. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Good. Whenever I think of you and, and think of your last appearance, the word apocalyptic sticks with me in terms of describing <laughs> the inventory bill that Walmart has. Um, so it looks like this could be an opportunity for a lot of retailers to just sort of dump the stuff that they have to get rid of. Yeah, it's really critical time. And it's going to be really interesting to see what happens this week with the, with the deals online, particularly, as you mentioned, inventory is all backed up like beyond all imagination. We've got back to school ready to kick off, and this is really the first semi-serious opportunity uh, we've had to, to, to see how the consumer is going to react to these really, really high gas prices and the in inflation because it really hadn't kicked in, in cri around Christmas time yet. Bill, Karen, thanks for being on. Let me ask you, if you, if you were back at Walmart or you're ahead of you know, Target, and they're stuck with all this inventory, do you just slash as much as it takes to get it sold? Or do you try to, I don't know, maximize, even if you have to hang on to inventory longer? Well, it's a balancing act, but you know, from where they are, I mean, both of them were just, just really unfathomable, unfathomable amount over their inventory budgets. 34, I think, percent for Walmart and 40 for Target. You got to get rid of that stuff at this point because you can't. You have nowhere to hold it, uh, and it will back up your entire system uh, as you get ready for back to school. And then the fall, the, you know, the, the, the cascade to to Halloween, to Thanksgiving, to to Christmas. Uh, if you're if you're not in the right inventory during those seasons, you just honestly don't have a chance. So I think they got to get rid of it now. 
I'd look for the liquidators to take some of it. They're marking a lot of it down. Um, and hopefully this, you know, selling event online will do something to, to move it out. I think the best day for Walmart was when Target said what they said, I think, the next day or so. But, Bill, who sets up best for this in this environment? Is it the dollar stores, some of the specialty retailers? Is there any sector that you would go to underneath that retail umbrella? Well, I think short term, you know, the discounters, TJ Maxx, some of those guys, they'll, they'll have inventory of a quality that they're not used to getting, liquidators, channel control, dirt cheap, some of those places. I, I think you got, I think you could get rid of that stuff, but that's short term. In the long run, I still like the really well capitalized guys, Costco, Walmart, Target. Um, they, they're going to rebound from this. This is a, a problem for them, but it's a, it's a, it's a speed bump, not a, not a, you know, end of the world scenario. You know, Bill, you make the point that Walmart isn't having one of these sort of days like, you know, Target sale days and, and Amazon Prime. They've already sort of discounted. What do you think of that strategy? There's no reason for me as a consumer to be driven to Walmart's site at this point. Um, and, and so unless you're a regular, you know, visitor to the site, you wouldn't know that they have heavy discounts. And, and I'm wondering if you think that they're actually getting rid of their inventory this way. Well, I don't know. It's hard to tell, to be honest with you. You know, there's a lot going on. Gas prices are, you know, the, the lo a, a massive impact to the, the middle class and below, which is right in Walmart's customer base. So that's got to be impacting them. They're probably challenged very heavily with, uh, with margin, with inflation, as they try to hold their prices down. And, uh, and you know, selling online uh, is is dilutive to their to their earnings. So that combination may have led them to try to liquidate through rollbacks in stores rather than online. They got a lot of executive changes happening too. A new chief merchant in January, a new CFO in in April. So there's a lot going on over there. I know you're probably biased, but it sounds like you think that there's a lot for Walmart to contend with at this point during what happens to be one of the toughest periods in retail. Oh, it is. It's it's probably one of the most difficult uh, retail environments in the last 20 years uh, with what was already the changing dynamic as consumers shifted online. Now you throw in COVID, shut everything down, start it all up, supply chain issues, gas prices at historic highs, inventory coming when it's not supposed to come and not coming when it is supposed to come. Um, it's a difficult environment. And that's why I kind of go back to the big guys they're really, really in better shape to handle this kind of thing than, than some of the smaller folks the, or the people who are already a little bit in trouble. You know, I know you said you're, pro you know, you're probably biased. You were at Walmart for so long. But it, at this point, I'm just going to ask you to entertain me for, with this. We play a game <laughs> called Would You Rather uh. Fast Money. So would you rather Walmart or Target? Which one do you think is better positioned right now to deal with this inventory glut? Uh, probably Target. Okay. Target's uh, Target's um, got less in dollar amount to move than Walmart does. Walmart's got a lot to move. All right, Bill. Thank you for your candor, as always. Bill Simon, always great to speak with you. Okay. Well, we got it from Bill Simon. He'd rather Target, Tim. What do you say? Uh, unless Has you Tim ever been lips. speechless. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the gremlins are in, in, in Tim's mic tonight. Um, Steve Grasso, where do you stand, Walmart or Target? 
So I would, uh, I would rather Walmart at this, at this point. Uh, Walmart's only down 13% uh, year-to-date. Target's beaten up. I guess if you want, wanted to play that, that bounce for a Target because it's down so much more aggressively than Walmart. But, uh, but I would, I would, I'll put in a would you rather, rather. I'm going to say it really fast so you can't stop me. TJX, <laughs> he brought up that name. He did not, he did not bring up Ross Stores, R-O-S-T. That's the same type of thing that a TJ Maxx will benefit from because of this oversupply that you're seeing. And I'll leave you with this to put a bow on it. I think this is actually a positive because they're actually getting supply in where we couldn't have any supply in these stores before. All right, uh, Tim's back. Tim, Hi. what do you say? <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Well, what I heard from Bill also was when I hear speed bump uh, and I hear a guy that really understands where there are problems and where, there's, where there are cycles and certainly talking about one of the most challenging moments in retail, but again, companies uh, that were more than punished in terms of valuation and, and Target uh, that much cheaper than Walmart here, probably 20% cheap to Walmart on a forward multiple. But both of these companies are so well positioned. What I heard was someone saying, yeah, difficult times. Uh, but if anything, uh, this Prime Day is truly back to school. Amazon's ready to roll. Uh, they certainly have their shipping back to where it has been. And if you look at the stock, um, so not the valuation argument that Walmart and Target have, but you buy Amazon here, you're basically getting AWS and you're getting the e-commerce business for free. I mean, think about that. It's, it's really not priced into the valuation of Amazon at this point. Um, I think comps on Amazon uh, get a lot easier from here. And I do think that the stock, which has struggled, uh, is in a good position longer term. You own both Walmart and Target. I do. Aaron, which yes. one do you love more? I like Target more, um, I, despite Walmart on a on an inventory percentage basis doing a bit better job. Um, just the valuation differential Tim talked about, it's actually a little bit bigger than he talked about. So I think it's a below market multiple for Target, and I think Target is at at worst an at market multiple. Mm -hmm. So Target. Costco's June sales were up 20.4% year over year. The stock has gone from 610 all-time high down to 490. That's a pretty dramatic sell-off. The problem is it still trades close to 32 times next year's numbers. And in this environment, that's a tough, that's a tough comp to sort of get your arms around. So although I like Costco here, valuation is a concern, I think. Coming up, service delayed. Shares of software company service now sinking after some weakness warnings. What the CEO sees coming in the second half of the year. The details next. Plus, it's been a steady stream lower for Taiwan Semi, and option traders aren't betting on a big reversal when results cross on Thursday. We'll tell you how they're playing the chip name when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. These macro crosswinds are blowing strong. You know, you're at 41-year high inflation. The dollar right now is the highest it's been in over two decades. We have interest rates rising. People are worried about security. You got a war in Europe. So the mood is not great. That was ServiceNow CEO Bill McDermott issuing a stark warning last night on Mad Money. Shares of the enterprise software company down more than 12% today. It's biggest loss since January of 2016. So is this something investors across tech need to pay attention to right now? Um, it certainly seems that way, according to the market action that we saw today, Karen. 
you're still short IGV. I'm still short IGV. This is a component of IGV. Some of the other components in that one, I think it was down maybe almost 4% today. I think, you know, ServiceNow is a fantastic company. He's a great leader. It's expensive. It's still expensive despite the move down, despite the, the big move down and then today's move down. It's still expensive. And so, you know, at uh, multiples of the market multiple. I understand it's a big growth company, but still too expensive for me. Still trades close to nine times revenue, I think. And the stock has gone from 700 down to what we close to 428 or so. So to Karen's point, it's still expensive. Great company, still expensive. But why was Microsoft down as much as it was today? I'm convinced, yeah. obviously, on the back of those comments. Microsoft warned on currency a month or so <laughs> ago. If they start to warn on demand, that's the right. next leg to this entire thing. Right, and that's what Bill McDermott was talking about in the interview, longer sales cycles in Europe. Yeah. Certainly, I mean, that's what we were talking about, Tim, before, in terms of European demand. It's a major market for a lot of companies, particularly tech and software companies. I think it's a very big deal. And, and we haven't really heard a lot about enterprise and, and slowing down. And I also think you're going to see uh, a prioritization of faster ROI projects versus these larger digital transformations. And, and so, I, you know, this is something that I think has not been priced into. Look, the price action of Microsoft over the last couple of days is awful. Um, and, and I'm not sure it's directly related to this. Um, I think it's, again, people assessing uh, some of the enterprise dynamics and some of the pull forward. And we're getting the earnings. We're going to talk about big cap tech uh, in the next hour. And it's an exciting conversation because uh, in some level, these stocks have been somewhat resilient. CRM or Salesforce doesn't fall into the same bucket as Microsoft. And so if you're looking at software companies and again, the challenge coming and the headlines that enterprise may be reprioritizing, and again, going to faster ROI projects is not good news. Yeah, I mean, companies are not only dealing with the uncertainty of war in Europe, they're dealing with higher energy prices, they're dealing with energy rationing potentially, <laughs> they're dealing with FX issues, Steve. I mean, there's a whole host of things that companies there are dealing with that even the U.S. companies are not necessarily dealing with in, to that magnitude. I've known Bill uh, for a long time, as, as the rest of the desk has. We've all been friendly with Bill. This is the most negative I've heard Bill sound in, in all the time that I've ever known him. So it's, that's a, just, a, just a response to how tough the macro environment is for companies like this. Um, IGV, Karen's been in. I've been in. I'm out of it now. 180, I think, or 175. From the, from the pandemic low all the way up to $450. There's a lot of room for these companies still to fall, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, it does sound, his interview, I agree, was very negative, and it sounds like a prelude to a guidance cut um, when they report in a couple weeks. Um, that's what Steve was also saying today. Coming up, earnings season is at our doorsteps, and there's a ton of big names gearing up to report, but which names are worth owning? We're playing a game of trade it or fade it to find out, but first, options traders plugging into Taiwan Semi ahead of the company's results Thursday, so how should you be trading the chip maker? We got the answer when Fast Money returns. If Just Karen tell everybody. It was Tim. Yeah, that wasn't Tim. It was me. Totally me. We were playing a game. So whatever. So un- After un- we were talking about unemployment like. and CPI and then playing a game. All right. So um, welcome back to Fast Money. <laughs> 
back to business. Check out Taiwan Semiconductor just barely failing to hang on to its early gains today. The chip stock reports earnings before the bell on Thursday. Options traders are betting that there's more weakness to come. Mike Coe has his phone off. He has the action. Mike. <laughs> yeah. So Taiwan Semi traded uh, one and a half times its average daily options volume today. And it's implying a 5% move, which is bigger than the 1.5% that it's averaged over the last eight reported quarters. The busiest options were the July 77 puts, just under 7,500 of those traded for just under a buck apiece. That included several institutional blocks of 500 contracts or more. Buyers of those puts are obviously betting that the stock could decline below that $77 strike price by the buck or so that they pay. Those options expire at the end of the week. That would be implying a move of 4% or more to the downside from here. Mm. Um, where do we think uh, Taiwan Semi will fall? We had the positive news out of Samsung, which got the chip sector jazz a little bit, Guy. Yeah, I mean, it's so there's so many cross currents here. But I think if you want to be in a space, and again, kudos to Steve, who pointed out months ago that this was probably commoditized, a lot of double ordering going on, and these stocks want to trade lower. But to me, Qualcomm, just on valuation alone, if you want to be on this, in this space, that's the place to be. Yeah, Tim? I look, Taiwan Semi at 79 bucks. You're at two-year support. This is kind of the level it traded up to uh, on Intel's pain was was Taiwan Semi's gain. Uh, valuation not not expensive here. Uh, obviously, they are the biggest. They will be most symptomatic of semiconductor weakness and some of the cyclicality here. Um, owning this stock at these levels down 45 percent is something I can do. Mike, thanks. Mike Coe for more options action. Tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, earnings season about to kick off. So how should you be trading the big names? Your favorite game, Trade It or Fade It, is next. Fast Money's back in two. You're having fun tonight, and we are. The action continues on a special second-hour Fast Money at the top of the hour. We are tackling earnings season with a jam-packed show, looking at all the names on deck to report. That is coming up top of the hour, 6 p.m. Eastern time. And speaking of earnings season, a host of marquee names headlining the action next week. Tesla, Netflix, J&J, D.R. Horton, United, to name a few. With that in mind, we thought we'd play a little game of... Trade it or fade it! That's game. right. America's favorite game, Trade It or Fade It. And let's start off with United Airlines. Karen, what do you say? I'm a fade it. I know, not popular right now. Stocks had a big rebound. I, I just think that if things are slowing down, that demand will slow. And also that balance sheet, they're going to have to refi a lot of debt much higher. Steve Grasso, what do you say? I'm going to say trade this one. So trade it. There you go. And uh, this one has outperformed the rest of the group. It's been trading between higher and lower bands on the, uh, on the chart. It's currently at a lower end of the band. So I think this one could actually rally probably another 20%. I know that's super aggressive, but I think, uh, as I said before, people are spending money in certain places. Now they're spending it at the airlines and all the current stuff we're seeing are tailwinds for the airlines. All right, let's uh, move on to Dr. Horton. Guy, trade it or fade it? Trade it, Mel. Some people are saying, how can you trade home builders in this environment? I'll tell you why. Carter Worth thinks 10-year yields are going to 2.5%. I think into earnings, the stock that's going from 110 to 70, found support, is worth a trade into earnings on the 21st of July, Mel. Wow. Yeah. That was fiery. Tim, yeah. trade it or fade it? 
I'm going to fade it. I am one of those people, Guy, that says, uh, how can you buy home builders in this? I, it, if we have a recession coming, and, and I realize the interest rate sensitivity, which will help these stocks, uh, we're not there yet. Uh, downgrades are coming, and I think DHI is actually uh, a place where people are lining up on valuation and saying there are better places to be in home builders than DH. All right, Netflix is up next. Karen, trade it or fade it? I'm going to trade it. What? Again? I think so. I mean, it's, it's certainly much closer to trade it than <laughs> fade it. I think a lot of bad news is already priced in. Expectations are lower. One thing interesting is an interview I think that Faber did with uh, Backish from Paramount mm-hmm. today talking about content prices coming down, which oh. would be very good right. for Netflix. All right. Guy, I got to tell you, binge watch Stranger Things. I mean, did it's ridiculous. Did you really? Absolutely. Do you know how to do that? No, there were, there were people that helped me <laughs> oh, okay. through that process. Because there's like a skip button where you don't have to go through the credits that says you yes, can skip right. this skip and the intro, you don't have to listen to all the, the songs. That reduces time by a serious amount. The problem that's is that's really all they got. And I'm a huge Reed Hastings fan, and Karen is right, but there's been no bounce whatsoever in this stock at all over the last couple months. So I think you got to fade it here and look for lower levels. I hate to say that. Uh, all right. Don't be scared. Oh, it scared it's just me. That's stranger things. The um, upside let's, down. Let's get to J&J. Tim, trade it or fade it? I think you trade it. Uh, look, I, I love J&J. I like the diversity of the business. I like you have a, 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 a medical products business that's pretty resilient, a consumer products business that I think actually is what you want to own in this environment. And the pharma pipeline is better than a lot of their peers. Valuation, uh, not demanding. This is the stock you want to own in these times. All right. Last but not least, Tesla. Steve, your take. Uh, I'm going to fade this one. I don't like to bet against Elon Musk, but uh, I'll make the exception this time. I think he's going to be bogged down with a lot of negative headlines uh, as he's been with Twitter. And maybe he'll say something that he'll regret saying or not. And he's also negative on the economy. And a lot a lot of times you're seeing it from your own uh, through your own prism. And I think he's negative because he knows what's coming down the pike for Tesla. Yeah, super bad feeling about the economy. He's got layoffs, hiring freezes going on, guy, money furnaces, burning money all around the world. No, no bueno. Can I fade yeah. his fade? Am I allowed to do that? That I means mean, that you're trading. No, 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 no. I'm, gonna, I'm, go, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm trying to play the I didn't know if we both yes. could be fade because I'm going to fade that sucker as well. Oh, okay. I'm with, right. you're I'm also, with 386 also on this one. The okay. stock has not traded well. I think a lot of people thought that Tesla would rally on the back of everything that Karen talked about the last couple days. It has not. Leads me to believe it goes lower from here. You're the one trading Twitter. Yeah. So how do you impute that onto Tesla at well, all? Well, to the extent that he would have to close on Twitter, that's mm-hmm. bad for Tesla. Just means he's more encumbered, right? Right. Right, right. Yeah, Tim, your thoughts? I, look, I think a double fade is a positive, by the way, Guy. I think Mel called you <laughs> out is. on that. But I, no, like, I, 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 I know it is. Um, but I, I fade it here, too. I, I think the dynamic, both uh, in terms of what's going on with the market and what we're paying for multiples here, where I think you priced in so much with Tesla, despite all their ability to, uh, to deal and through difficult times on production. The competitive landscape in Asia, also, uh, Kia, Hyundai, ramping up their EV. I think a lot of competition in Asia, which has been a big market. All right, time for the final trade. Stop it. For this hour of fast, remember there's another hour of fast money. But for now, final trades, Tim Seymour, what do you say? Bill Simon got me fired up at Target and Walmart, but I'm going to go with Walmart. I, I like it. It may not be as cheap, but I think it was knocked down way too much. They are the beast in retail. Steve Grasso. I've been saying sell XLE, the energy ETF. I'm going to stick with that one. 
And I do believe, though, the only light at the end of the tunnel for energy is that when they report earnings, they're going to be the only ones that are, have wider margins than the rest of the earnings space. But I'm still sticking with it. I think lower prices energy. Hey, Karen, yeah, another one that Bill Simon mentioned, TJX should be the beneficiary of all this excess inventory. Long that. Guy. Karen used the word encumbered. There's one song that uses the word encumbered. It's from the Hollies. He ain't heavy. One song He's my world. brother. Yes, as a matter of fact. Go okay. to Google it right now. DHI, in the face, Tim Seymour, in the face. So aggressive. <laughs> yeah. No need for that. That does it for this hour of Fast Thank Money. Do not go anywhere. It's a two for Tuesday. Another hour on tap right after this, a Fast Money special edition in two. Welcome, Mad Money fans. Jim is off tonight, but we have got a special bonus hour of Fast Money lined up for you. We're counting down to earnings season. Delta's on the clock for tomorrow, and then it's on to the big banks. We'll set the table for the most important earnings season since before the pandemic. And beyond the banks, we'll zero in on tech and the fang trade. Can Apple, Amazon, Meta, and the other tech titans fuel a second-half rebound? Plus, a double-barrel dive into the consumer will serve up the second-half outlook for the restaurant stocks and talk to famed executive Mickey Drexler about the state of retail in the face of so many headwinds. I'm Melissa Lee. This is a special edition of Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ Market Site. Still with us on the desk, Karen Feinerman, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, and Steve Grasso. We will get right to it now. We've got a full slate of reports coming this week from J.P. Morgan and Citi to Delta and Taiwan Semi. And things get even more heated next week when we hear from the likes of Netflix, Tesla, J&J, and more. So with continued high inflation, a consistently strengthening dollar, and fears of a looming recession, what should investors be listening to when all these companies report? Big question, Guy. I think it's a guidance. It's not necessarily what this quarter was. It's what they see going forward. And specifically, Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan will speak. It'll be interesting to see if he doubles down on the comment about hurricanes that he made a month or so ago or if he backs off a little bit. So for me, it's not necessarily the quarter they're reporting. It's what they're seeing going forward in terms of guidance, Mel. Yeah, Karen? I agree exactly with that. It's sort of like if you had a great quarter, it doesn't matter. The street's going to look through. If you had a crappy quarter, you're going to get penalized for that. You're probably going to get penalized for your guidance, which will probably be soft as well. So, you know, it's it's a tough tape for that. And I think that we'll see that phenomenon of competitive. So let's say a target doesn't do or Walmart comes up first. They don't do well. Target will trade down on that. Target comes out and doesn't do well. It will trade down on that again, penalized multiple times for the same thing. Yeah. Tim, and specifically within the guidance, what line items will you be listening for? Yeah, I think it's it's demand side. It's it's top line. And and remember, in, in the numbers we've just gone through or the last earnings season, part of the, the dynamic, especially for Target and Walmart, it was really a margin dynamic. It was where they had to guide down. It was inventory related. Um, but I, I think this is all about demand. The, the guide I want to talk, hear about is where is the consumer? Where is the demand side? Where, where are we? Uh, because that's where companies really need to be pricing. We know about dollar headwinds. We know about margin pressures. Uh, we know about inflation. Uh, we don't know about demand. That's absolutely what we want to see. On some level, it's a lot simpler. Uh, I thought last quarter was a lot more nuanced, especially as we dealt with supply chain meets inflation uh, and inventory, et cetera. Yeah, and last quarter there was there was more of a hope that the supply chain issues would straighten themselves out, and here we are, um, you know, this week hearing about more lockdowns in China and whether or not that will actually be extended. Steve, that's not good um, for those sorts of outlooks. Companies will not be rewarded for saying, "Yeah, you know what, things are getting better," and then slam, a lockdown happens, and the supply chain is is tangled again. Yeah, I think it's a. I think you really have to understand 
where your companies, where your stocks that you own are generating their revenue from. So margins are going to be uh, in question. Uh, supply chains are going to be in question. The dollar is going to be the most in question. And I think it's too early for the dollar to spill through to earnings. So you're gonna to have to pay attention to the guidance, to what they're saying about margins. And those companies that have held their margins are going to be the most profitable and the, and the ones that you wanna be buying. Because we've gotten through, hopefully, the thick of a lot of these things. The dollar is the headwind currently, rates are the headwind currently, but that's subsided. So just pay attention to margins and where they're at for the companies that you own. Yeah, um, the setup is important, of course, Guy. You know, in the course of this quarter, we're down, what, like 400 or so S&P points. I yeah. mean, the question is, what is the setup going in? Have we priced in a lot of these things? And, of course, within certain sectors, there have been steeper pullbacks than others, and so maybe have priced in a lot more. So I think that's fair, and, and I think that's exactly the right question to ask. And if you go back a couple quarters, I would have said the setup for a Facebook, for example, now Meta, was extraordinary to be long the stock, and then you saw what happened. So... You can get tremendous head fakes in this environment, thinking a stock has sold off 30, 40 percent, that it sets up well, only to see it go down another 10 to 15 percent. So I think that argument, at least for me this quarter, is somewhat out the window. And again, other things to look at, and Karen can speak to this, loan loss provisions. So we're going to start yeah. to hear about that going forward in terms of the health of the consumer and those types of things. So that's just one more thing I'd be looking at. I mean, not too long ago, we were talking about reserve releases mm -hmm. helping the banks, and now it's the opposite that's going on. But have we priced right. that in? I, I think we priced a lot in. I think there's probably still some reserve releases to be had, and when you do that with, the, when you combine that with some loan loss provisions, you get a much a smaller number. But I think that um, it's just going to be about the commentary about the economy, and I think we're going to see net interest income improve, right, as rates have been higher. They're telling you they're going to have better net interest income, loan growth is going to be good, that's better, better margin stuff. But the question for, for the big money center banks, I do think trading revenue will be down and I think clearly investment banking revenue will be down. And those things I hope are priced in because it's not a shock, right? It, it, so hopefully they're priced in. I like it when banks go into earnings having traded poorly, which it's a bang up <laughs> setup now. Right. They really have traded poorly. All right, Tim? I, I want to be careful with companies that were defensive over the last couple of quarters. I, I don't like valuations in, in a lot of those companies. I also think some of the dynamics that made pharma defensive we've talked about tonight. I do think that there are uh, big hits to some parts of, of their regional uh, sales dynamic, whether it's also dollar pressure. Uh, I think you have to be very careful about what has worked over the last couple of quarters. In terms of what hasn't, obviously, uh, growth names, and we, we've talked about this. Guy, guy references a Facebook. Facebook, not really a growth stock, but certainly categories under uh, a, a, a tech uh, landscape where arguably you should have more growth. And, and I think some of these big cap tech companies are places where you're going to have some defensiveness. I, I don't think we've going to, you know, I don't, I don't think we've heard the type of de demand warnings out of Apple and Microsoft that I want to hear before it's all clear. But I think some of the high multiple tech names uh, have endured a lot. It's not necessarily scoop them up with both hands. Uh, the bigger dynamic is Consumer staple stocks are not cheap. Pharma companies, in some cases, are not cheap. And I think that is something you have to be careful of. Steve, why would you be short XLE going into earnings? I mean, this should be the sector that has the best earnings, theoretically. <clears throat> the, yeah, it should. But I think people are looking through that. What, what can be better 
than this. You know, our earnings, you, you always want to see what's leading and what's lagging. Earnings are a lagging indicator. So it's always a backward-looking uh, data point. And w no one's going to argue on this desk that things weren't a perfect setup for energy companies across the board. Where do things go that are better for them going forward? We've already seen commodities crack. So that's going to hit their, their bottom line. So that's why I'd be, I'd be looking through where you see them now and looking for where the puck is going to be. But one last thing, Diamond, Zuckerberg, Musk, and now McDermott, how many other CEOs are gonna come out and say, macro headwinds are slamming our stocks and the economy? You don't wanna be investing in that market. All right, our next guest is urging investors to watch out for value traps this earnings season. Chris Harvey is the head of equity strategy at Wells Fargo Securities. Chris, nice to see you. Where are these traps in your view? So these traps are everywhere. And when we talk about value traps, it's your early cyclicals. It's companies trading at two, three, four, five times earnings, not revenues. And you're finding it in autos, you're finding it in home builders, you're finding it in chemicals, in energy, and in certain financials. So really across the board. This is a place we would stay away from. If you get a pop in these names, this is, these are names that we want to take out and take out of the portfolio. One of the concerns I've had, Chris, is just in terms of credit in the form of high yield, HYG, that's obviously sort of been trading sideways recently, but that's one thing I'm focused on. Is that a concern that credit's sort of the last to go in, in this domino effect of the, of the market? Yeah, credit is a concern. We always watch credit, we watch how it trades, we watch the new issue market. It's wine year to date. The other thing is, if we're right on cyclicals, cyclicals are tied to IG and high yield. If the earnings begin to go down, if there's a derating, you should see that way on credit. And one, one, one will um, really reinforce the other. And that's not a great situation. Chris, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. So we see in cyclicals, right, they have cyclical multiples as well. Low multiples when yeah. things are, are, are bad and actually counterintuitively sometimes higher. How much do you think the E is going in uh, will come, come down so that the PE isn't really what we think it is and the value isn't really what we think it is? Okay, Karen, I, I don't usually talk about stocks and I, I don't want to trip myself up, but today I looked at letter X. It is trading at less than two times earnings. What the market is saying is those earnings in three, six, 12 months are going to be a lot, lot lower. And the multiple that you're really looking at it's probably two, three, four, five times of, of what it is. It's late again. I, I can't repeat this enough. It's late in the cycle. These early cyclical, cyclicals are hard to defend. Earnings are going to be re-rated down. This is a place that we would stay away from. This is a place we want to rotate out of. Chris, I had to do a double take when I read the notes and I saw that your S&P 500 target is 47.15, um, which is quite a ways away from here. Uh, is that yeah. accurate for one? And do we need to we, we, we need to see big cap tech um, pull its weight here? So what sort of earnings yeah. setup are we looking at, whether it be this quarter or the guidance yeah. going forward? So, so a couple of things, just just on, on the number and, and then I'll get into the question. As far as the number last year, we were bull on the street. We we're expecting a melt up this year. We came in with third or fourth lowest on the street. We we're expecting a 10 percent pullback bear market in a lot of the high flyers that occurred, we just weren't bearish enough, right? Is that number too high? Maybe, possibly. But what we're saying to clients is we think equities, we didn't think you can make money from the long side at the beginning of the year. We do think you can make money to the long side now. And to your point, it's going to be in the growth names. 
what we're seeing is indiscriminate selling in a lot of the growth names. A lot of these secular growers are now trading at reasonable prices, anywhere from 14 times to 28 times for secular growers. This is where we want to start to put our money. And this is an environment where growth is going to slow down. The economy will probably go into recession and growth is going to work. So this at the margin is where you want to put your dollar. When you think about technology, though, the biggest within these, this big cap tech group is Apple, and that's more of a discretionary stock. So when you talk about a slowdown in the economy and a slowdown in the consumer, doesn't that, right. doesn't that stock get caught up in that? Well, how much are your Apple products really discretionary? You probably have a ton of them. And yes, what we're worried about as far as the consumer is we think a consumer recession is coming. What we've been saying is the consumer's balance sheet is really strong. But close to a quarter of it is tied up in the equity markets. When equities are down 20 percent, you know, that really weighs on sentiment. That really weighs on consumer discretionary spending and ultimately the economy. The kind of the catchphrase here is the U.S. economy, the equity bait on the U.S. economy has never been higher. But getting back to Apple, a lot of the Apple products, yes, they're somewhat discretionary, but not as much as you think. And at the end of the day, what we want are companies with stable earnings. We want to gravitate to certainty. We think that what we think that's what the market will pay for. And some of those companies are in tech. Some of them are in fintech. Some are on the consumer side. But what we're seeing again is indiscriminate selling on the growth side. Many of the growth managers I talk to are having a very difficult time. And what we want to do is we want to capitalize upon that. All right, Chris, good to see you. Thank you. Chris Harvey Thank you. of Wells Fargo. All right. So on the one side, you have you know, names like an Apple, which could be caught up in a slowdown in consumer spending. You've got a Google and you've got a Meta, um, whose main source of, of revenue adds mm. um, their track with GDP. So you see the slowdown in GDP, you see the slowdown in that revenue. But on the other hand, you have very good balance sheets for all of these names. I don't think balance sheets are concerned at all. I think yeah. they've for, many of these companies have been able to fortify themselves over the last few years, and they've done the right thing. It's not about that. It's about what does demand cycle look like, right? And in terms of valuations, what do these companies look like? And in terms of Apple, real quick, I mean, Katie Huberty at Morgan Stanley, I'm not saying she's saying sell Apple by any stretch, but for the first time in a long time, she's been cautious on the name. And a lot of people out there that think Apple's the last shoe to drop, July 26th, I think, they report earnings. I thought the market would rally into Apple earnings, and that would be the next catalyst to take us lower. I'm going to stand by that and think that's going to happen. Yeah, Steve? Yeah, I, you know, for me, when you look at a bottom, and, I, and I've said this before, it's not when people are selling those growthy names with, with exorbitant uh, multiples. It's when they sell their Apple is when you could finally call the bottom. So I don't think we're, in the, we're at the bottom in the overall market. But when I look at a stock like Apple down 17%, Google down 21% year to date, and then Meta down 51% year to date, it just shows you how investor confidence is completely lost with Meta. They're still willing to hold on to Google and Apple, and that's its value at basically any price, and they'll, 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 they'll have a death grip on it. But Meta is not something I would still invest in right now. But until we see Apple fade to guys' levels, I don't think we can call a bottom in the, ulti- uh, in the uh, market ultimately. Yeah. Tim, I think you're sort of in that camp. Well, I am. I'm, I'm concerned that we just haven't gotten the demand warning out of mega cap tech. And we've had a, a theme tonight about enterprise spend. And that, that's obviously critical for Microsoft and, and, and certainly for Google and, and for Amazon as you get into their cloud businesses. When I hear Chris say he thinks that consumer recession is coming, 
Like, I, I don't know how we, we, we get to a place where the market can rally. And, and I don't know how we can get to a place where the market can rally, you know, 25 percent in the next five and a half months. So um, I, I think the, the the real key is where you're finding companies that may or may not be out of the throes. I, I actually look, as you know, as our viewers know, companies like Ford and GM and Disney that that are at very cheap multiples, uh, and at least Disney relative to the last couple of years are companies that I do think you're adding to here. There's there's and if anything, what we've seen is that there's been demand in those names and we've gotten updates from CEOs recently giving you some sense that that uh, the demand still exists for their products. So those are the uh, the places that I think you can be more aggressive in places where I think you've priced in an enormous amount of pain. And then some of the cyclical stuff that's related to reopening. Yeah, the reopening trade. And I still think that uh, banks on some level, but absolutely airlines and some of the transportation and travel and leisure are still places where um, you have not seen these companies price back in uh, their customer base at full steam. Coming up, the real read on retail. Former Gap and J. Crew CEO Mickey Drexler is joining us in a few to give us his take on the space and why you may want to look elsewhere for opportunity. But first, big tech earnings on deck, a lot of ton uh, names gearing up to report results. So what can you expect? We're breaking down the trades when this special edition of Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Big tech will be front and center this earnings season, but with early warnings from names like Microsoft and Snap, what should we be prepared for? Let's trade it. And the plot thickens because we also basically got the cautionary words from Bill McDermott of Service. Bill McDermott, excuse me, a ServiceNow guy. I think, to me at least, in terms of valuation, the one you can get your arms around, I'm sure Karen would agree, is Google. I think just on valuation alone, it's a compelling story. Problem, obviously, is ad spend and what's going on in that world. But to me, the key to this whole thing, does Microsoft say they have a demand problem going forward? They warned on currency a month or so ago. Do they warn on demand? That, to me, could be very problematic for the broader market. Karen, how do you think about ad spend in this environment when it comes to Meta and Google? I think it'll be lower. The question is, will it be lower by more or less than the stock is already lowered right. on the anticipation of it? But just one, touching on one thing that Guy said, Microsoft on cloud, if, if what we just heard uh, from Bill McDermott is, is the case, and I have every reason to believe it is, then Microsoft is more levered to the cloud than Google, which also, you know, the number three player. So I'm most comfortable with Google and, and uh, Meta. Yeah. Steve? I'm not comfortable, as I said before, with Meta at all. I don't think they know where they're going. So it's hard for investors to follow. They're still an earnings machine, but I think people are looking through that because they're not sure what the end game is, what the strategy is, and it has not been translated from management so that it's in a coherent, uh, understandable fashion that we could all invest around. Um, Google, um, I would still be a buyer there, although I don't own it. I still own Apple. I'd be there. But I think if you look at these stocks and you know how I look at them based on the February 2020 level and whether or not that's the level or not, doesn't matter. A lot of them are very lofty or very high above that level. Snap is not. But when you look at Snap, TikTok has sucked up all the air in the room. Um, Tim, you said that you want to hear the demand warning from big tech. Let's say that they, a lot of companies come out and they say things are fine. Does that make you feel any better? I, or you just not, don't believe not them? Not really. And, and, well, it's not that I don't believe them, but, but I, I think you rightly 
pointed and labeled Apple as a consumer discretionary. It's not it's it's certainly not a staples company. It's not really a hardware company. We're arguing very much that that uh, have for years. And and I don't think either side of that business, hardware or software or services uh, are cheap. Guy referenced uh, at least some analyst assessment that the services business is, is going to be under a little bit more pressure. So the valuation just doesn't really make sense. It's 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 the best company in the world, however. So um, it's, it's not like the sky is falling. I, I think their balance sheet is pristine. There's a lot of levers they can pull. Uh, they are going to continue to innovate, but but not here and now. And, and I guess, you know, I look at Microsoft, uh, Karen referenced the cloud business more important. This is a hundred billion uh, plus run rate uh, in cloud. So this is a massive, massive business that grew 29% last year. It's not going to go 29% this year. Um, and I think it's probably going to grow half of that. And, and this is a 50% plus international revenue story that has even more dollar pain ahead of it than they've announced. Meta, perversely, is the one where I think, if anything, on the communication, they've been dialing back the messaging on the spend, and especially as it relates to Metaverse. So I, I, I think we've, we've priced in all the cyclicality uh, in, their, in their digital ad business, of which they are still the juggernaut, and no one's going to really knock them off that mantle. And yes, a lot of this pulling back, but that's massive margin business. So I actually think uh, the, the, the tone around Meta, I don't love it either. I feel the need to put that disclaimer. Don't like the company, don't like the service. Um, uh, but I think the stock has the ability to rally into these numbers or coming out of these numbers. You agree with Tim in terms of your dislike for the product guy. I've always disliked. It's such a disdain do for you Facebook. Have you been on the him? Facebook recently? No, I've never no. been on the Facebook. No, I do agree with him in terms of <laughs> the just. Stock. The, I think to his point, they've dialed back some of the rhetoric. But again, this stock has not traded well since they've made that pivot. And I mentioned Facebook earlier in terms of that huge move lower. Thought it looked like a complete value into two earnings ago, and then it obviously cascaded lower from there. You can make a very cogent, coherent argument on valuation, but if we were to play the game we play at 5 o'clock, would you rather oh, that Facebook or Google? <laughs> Google at a market multiple with an 18 to 20% EPS growth yeah. in front of them, to me, makes the most sense. All right. Coming up, former retail CEO Mickey Drexler will join us to dig into the retail space, why he says now is not the time to be bullish. His thoughts next. Plus, big bank earnings kick off Thursday, and a top analyst says the group is looking fairly attractive here. He'll break down his call in just a few. Don't go anywhere. Much more on this special edition of Fast Money in two. Welcome back to a special hour of Fast Money. The consumer discretionary sector, one of the laggards in the S&P today, down about three quarters of a percent. The group plunging 31 percent this year on slowing consumer demand and a growing inventory glut. Now there's a fear that earnings season could fuel even more trouble for the sector. Let's bring in one of retail's most well-known CEOs, Mickey Drexler. Mickey, of course, ran Gap and J. Crew. He's now the CEO of apparel company, Alex Mill. Mickey, great to see you. It's been a while. Thank you, Melissa. Nice to see you. So you say there's no reason to be bullish retail these days. That sounds horrible coming from somebody who is in the industry right now. Why? Well, um, and these are my opinions. Uh, the environment's incredibly difficult. Uh, and what, I, what you see, and I hear that, you know, anecdotally, uh, and we're feeling it a bit over the last week or two, what you're seeing out there is enormous discounts on merchandising, on merchandise, because there's... Um, Inventory gluts, again, from what I hear, and I speak to a lot of people, and I like to study the industry, uh, but 
uh, I think uh, I'd be concerned. We're very concerned. Uh, in, we have a tiny little business right now that we're very excited about, and it's growing well. But, um, you know, big sales, big discounts. And, you know, today is Amazon Prime Day and Target Dollar Day. And it just reminds people, I think, of the fact that uh, there's a lot on sale. You can buy a lot on sale. And uh, I think it's been a factor over the last few years. It's, uh, it's an issue about why pay full price if I can get it on sale. That plus inflation, which we know about. So uh, we're being very defensive about business. Uh, and I think it, right now, I think it's the right thing to do. Vicky, it's Karen Feinerman. Thanks so much for being on. Love hearing your thoughts because you're such a, I don't know, been around the industry a long time and know many long cycles. Time. Yeah, many cycles you've seen. But when you think about this one and you think about other cycles that you've been through, how long does it take, do you think, for this to shake out, for the inventory issues to recede and to get back to a more normalized, less promotions and... Um, more confidence that the consumer will be there? Well, I, I don't really have a crystal ball on that. Uh, my opinion is worth whatever anyone's opinion is. I, I think the environment in America and the world is as tough as I've seen it. Uh, and I'm not an economist. I'm, I'm not a, an analyst. But uh, what's in the air is very difficult. The pricing is very difficult. The freight, the increase in fabrics. I look at a lot of retail prices and I'm stunned. And there's really no accident today about, uh, or no surprise, about the huge discounts you're seeing up to 70% here, there, and everywhere. Uh, because I think a lot of people got bullish. I also think uh, post-pandemic, it's been very hard to figure out where to invest your dollars. Um, and I also think the assortments, I always say this, you go into a store today, you go online, there's 50 more items or styles than you need. And we're trying right now, if you look in the back of me, that's our, our fall men's uh, collection. It's hard to shop, but if you know, go online in the fall. But we've cut back our style counts dramatically. Uh, why? Because the winners win, and then the stragglers cost you plenty of money. Uh, and you can't bet every horse in a race. So uh, I don't know when it's going to end. I'm very concerned about everything I see and feel. I'm also thinking that the products out there, that's what drives retail business in the fashion business anyway, or in the apparel business. Uh, products are, are number one, king and queen. Uh, and that takes merchandisers and designers to create that. I don't see a big emphasis on product, in my personal opinion. If you go out there, it's hard to shop. Uh, product's not great in a way. Uh, and I think the industry uh, has a lot of senior executives who perhaps don't have the experience. You know, I've been doing this for 110 years and you get smarter every year. And uh, so I, I think that's a big factor. You can't discount product. You go to a restaurant, you want good food from a good chef. Uh, and we all, in a sense, play the same role. So I feel there's a lot more emphasis on, you know, more of the marketing of social media, uh, which is fine. It's critically important, but start with good product. And mm -hmm. that's always the most important thing. I think a lot of people forget that. For a lot of years, Mickey, uh, people have been 
saying that, uh, you know, certain stores are going to go out of business. There's no room in this environment. Is this going to be the environment that actually shakes out and weeds out some of the weaker players? And I guess I'm, I'm also thinking specifically of a company that you used to run, The Gap. The CEO just stepped down. Is there room in this sort of environment for a company like The Gap? Well, there's room for any company that does it well, uh, that excites the customer, that's innovative, creative, and has great goods. Now, it's not easy uh, in any business. Gap is not immune to uh, the environment that we're in today. But it's always about leadership. It's always about intuition with a merchant, designer, and operating partners and marketing. So, uh, you know, I, I always respected them. I'm friendly with their executive chairman, who's a terrifically wonderful and talented guy, Bobby Martin. And um, he's got a big challenge ahead. Uh, so turning it around, you know, first of all, big is, to me, not great, because it gets so bureaucratic, big corporations. Uh, I always try to keep the jobs I've had small and intimate and micromanaging, and now I'm in a very small company. But, I, you know, I, I don't know. I can't answer what they can do. It can be done, but all the big specialty companies, the big ones, mm-hmm. are all not immune to what's going on. But I always get back. I'm a one-track mind. Have the right goods. Invest in the right way. And, and you'll win. So I, th- I think they're up for big challenges, as are many other companies. Mickey, it's always great to get your take. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Nice to... Uh, Thanks a lot, Melissa. Take care. Nikki Bye. Drexler um, of uh, now Alex Mill. Um, some of those styles look like they'd be good on Tim Seymour. Um, but Tim, <laughs> in terms of retail, how do you how do you start thinking about uh, you know if there's going to be some sort of shakeout? Maybe some won't weather this inventory glut, supply chain issue, period, as well as others. Those are some good looking fashions behind Mickey. So uh, anytime he wants to outfit me, I'm ready to roll. Um, I I think you have a dynamic where uh, the inventory trends are are well documented. Uh, I think some of the uh, you know, the, the issues on, on logistics and ERP and things that are, are, are pushing a lot of these margins lower are things that are also priced in. But I think the consumer uh, and where they are saturated at this point is something we haven't really priced in. But some of these trends that we're talking about and Mickey referenced, I think, are particularly difficult for department stores. So as much as I've been bullish on a turnaround at Macy's, it's hard for me to see how that environment gets better for them. Um, the, the good news for retail right now is is the, the king and the queen, to use his terms, are, are probably Nike and Lululemon, and we've gotten recent data points and earnings from them. We got fiscal 4Q from Nike. Uh, they beat, uh, they talked a bit about China and some of those dynamics, but um, it was a neutral guide, which I, I think is a victory. So there are folks that are navigating, and again, the folks that, that have the ability to go DTC uh, as well as have a retail presence are the ones that are in a better position here. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a tough place. I think, I think a lot of pull forward has gone through, especially in retail, and that discounting that we're all accustomed to, we're probably getting more of now because of those inventory levels. So just to have Mickey Drexler on, I mean, for some of our viewers don't know, I mean, the gap, he created this gigantic thing out of nothing. And then J. Crew, that catalog business, I mean, just revolutionary, evolutionary. But so to me, it's, you know, there's a shakeout coming, like he said, and that's you got to look at balance sheets. So a Bed Bath & Beyond, for example, not so good balance sheet. That's where you've got to look to see who survives first. That's the first thing to look at. Yeah. Steve, quickly. 
Yeah, I, I think that he talks about innovation, and I think what's going to be at the, uh, at the center of the hub is going to be AR and VR, augmented and virtual reality. And I think you have to think about on Amazon is a natural fit for that. So they're going to lead again. And uh, one last thing, the retailers that were weak before the pandemic will probably be in your shakeout list. They'll be the ones to fail. Coming up, check out all the financials getting ready to report. But which names should you be banking on? A top analyst joins us next to lay out his picks. Plus, some restaurant stocks getting grilled so far this year. Grilled. But can't, no, I can't take credit for that one. Um, but can strong earnings turn these names around? More on that when this special two-hour edition of Fast Money returns. Welcome back to the special edition of Fast Money. Q2 bank earnings kick off Thursday with J.P. Morgan and Morgan Stanley reporting before the bell. The stocks have been under pressure for most of the year, but our next guest thinks bad news is priced into the results. Jeff Hart is managing director, senior research analyst at Piper Sandler. Jeff, good to see you. We were just just talking about guidance. What's your sense of how, um, since the quarter closed, what the environment has been like for banks? What do you think their guidance is going to sound like? You know, I think we'll get two things out of the guidance, and it's kind of what we've been getting a lot of the last recent quarters. One, net interest income, they're probably going to get higher again. I mean, I think the street's generally being conservative on on interest income just kind of to to, to play it safe. And then the second leg is going to be credit. I think we're going to get, you know, no problems in the credit front yet. Unfortunately, what investors are really going to be looking for is a little further look out at the windshield as opposed to through the rearview mirror of what the quarter was like, specifically how bad can credit get and when's it going to get there is going to be one of the big focal points for investors. I'm not, not sure that we're going to get you know much for answers for management yet on that one. Jeff, we talk a lot about the yield curve inverting. Does it make that big of a difference? Is that something you're watching in terms of your forecast for a lot of these names? Uh, not so much so. I mean, what, what the big difference is, is it, you know, it tends to, to you know, forecast a recession and look banks provide the lubrication that makes the economy work so i mean you have to have a back review and if your back review is a tough recession coming banks are going to be a, a tough place to be but we do tend to look a little more at the six-month five-year yield curve as opposed to the standard two-year tenure it gives you a little better kind of picture of, of how it infects the banks and that's flattened quite a bit recently as well but it's still kind of sitting at least in a, in a better shape than that two-year tenure Hey, Jeff, it's Tim. Um, Interesting plant over your shoulder, by the way. Um, So uh, the question (laughs) I have in terms of a a breakdown between uh, regional and money center banks, is is one better prepared to weather this period? And I think from a credit perspective, potential losses and whatnot, I I think I know the answer. But um, is there a way you would be tactical in this period as you look at the entire sector? Yeah, I mean, as we look at it now, what we know is traditional banking is still really strong, uh, whereas investment banking is kind of a little weaker. We'll see how that plays out going forward. But I, I still tend to, to be in the camp of liking the, the money center banks, right? the, the large cap players, for two reasons. One, they've got scale and it matters more than ever now. So if we are in a tough, really tough economic environment, they've got the scale to defend the bottom line while still investing in things like marketing and technology to kind of... Uh, some market share 
But the second part, though, is really what we've seen from credit so far. I mean, especially like credit cards, right? You look at B of A, JP Morgan, and Citigroup, their credit card delinquencies on a monthly basis are still going down. That's not what we've seen for the credit card you know, industry in general. So I think we're actually um, seeing some of, some of the better kind of credit underwriting from some of the big banks, which is a bit unusual for maybe what we've always seen in the past. Jeff, it's Karen. Thanks so much for being on. So to that point about credit, do you think then that they should be proactively conservative and say, all right, even though we're not seeing it right now, let's take some reserves because if the economy slows down, we're going to see a tick up in credit losses? I think so. I mean, I, I would like to see that. I don't know if we will, because it is still somewhat formulaic as to how they have to arrive at the reserves to, to put up. So I think, you know, we, we're kind of hitting, if not hit the end of reserve releases, and that's going to be a matter of how much do they build them. But I mean, J.P. Morgan kind of sets the tone kind of when they come out. And I, I think if they were to come out and, and you know, start more meaningfully building reserves, that would, that would be viewed positively, because it would kind of show that they're prepared and, you know, the market thinks that's coming. I think as you look forward, one of the pushbacks I get from investors on the space is kind of the consensus estimate still has credit losses, you know, somewhere less than they were in 2018, 2019, pre-COVID. I think that the, the investors thinking out there is it's got to be higher than that, potentially meaningfully higher than that before, uh, you know, it accurately reflected. So unlike kind of you go back to the fourth quarter in January when J.P. Morgan came out and said, expenses are going up, the stock got hit pretty hard. I think if they were in the lead off with some reserve bills, that might actually be well received by the market. Jeff, good to speak with you. Thank you. Good to be on. Good night. Jeff Hart of Sandler. Um, potential upside, he says, for Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley guy. I think yeah. that camp. No, and I think we talked about Goldman Sachs a few weeks ago. They could trade their way out of this quarter. I don't know if the street's going to reward them, but I thought the stock would rally in their earnings. But J.P. Morgan, to me, sets up the best. I'm sure Karen would echo this. 35% peak to trough decline since October. Probably about as cheap as you're going to get in terms of price to book that we've seen in quite some time. And I think you're going to see a relief rally in the name, which may take the broader market higher as well. I mean, to Jeff's point, you probably want to see banks take reserves in this I think so. He did right? make an interesting point, which is they can't just be overly conservative. Right. They are. It's a tightly you know, regulated thing how much you can reserve. But I think it would be good if they could push it a little. Yeah. Steve? Uh, I can't buy banks going into what I think is going to be a recession, whether it's shallow, garden variety, or anything or all of the above. You're going to have less small business loans, less mortgages, less trading profits, less business and, and economic activity. All of them are down 20 to 30% year to date, all the majors. Well, the odd thing is Wells Fargo has outperformed on a relative basis. If you're gonna buy a bank, I'd buy Wells Fargo, as silly as that sounds coming out of my mouth. <laughs> I was gonna say, it does sound kind of, I mean, Tim, what do you think of that strategy? Well, I, I look at some of the money center banks and I look at their commercial loan growth. But more importantly, I look at higher rates and, and these banks haven't had rates here in how long? I mean, the profitability that people are not really expecting uh, with companies that that banks that have balance sheets that have never been better, et cetera. So, sure. Um, Jamie Dimon talks about storms. So you have to prepare for storms. You have to put some money aside. But I, I think you have a dynamic where the profitability of the banks is underappreciated here. Um, what kind of recession we have? Not sure. Um, have we priced it in? Not sure. Um, feel like we've priced in a lot. And again, if you look to peak to trough drawdowns, the guy references, um, these are the type that we've seen through much nastier periods. Um, I think we're all highlighting concerns around credit. 
Uh, and that's the big unknown here. I, I don't think people are going to uh, have banks get away from them. But I think if you're an investor and you're picking some of these names, and I think Bank of America uh, sets up better on valuation, um, I think you have opportunities here. All right. Up next on this special two-hour edition of Fast Money, we are cooking up some restaurant trades. A look at some beaten up names that could turn around this earnings season. And you've got questions. We've got answers. The traders will take your tweets. So as we go to break, check out uh, the NASDAQ 100's biggest gainers so far this year. Much more Fast Money straight ahead. Welcome back. Restaurant stocks kick off earnings next week, and some beaten-down names are looking for a turnaround. Kate Rogers has got the details. Hey, Kate. Hey, Melissa. It's been a rough first half of the year for the restaurant sector. The hardest-hit names, you just saw some of them in the first half. Shake Shack, Wingstop, Sweetgreen, Denny's, and Brinker International. Now, the names that have held up best are fast food names, McDonald's, Yum China, Yum Brands, and restaurant brands. McDonald's, in particular, did well in the last recession. Inflation and those recession concerns will dominate the storyline this earnings season. We've heard from companies like Chipotle and McDonald's touting their pricing power in earlier quarters, and we'll be watching to see if that power sticks as consumers grapple with record high inflation and may consider cutting back when it comes to dining out. Labor is also still a concern for some companies. Domino's, which was a big pandemic winner, has struggled with drivers in recent quarters, which impacted its ability to deliver pizzas. It's implemented some modest price hikes and has been leaning further into carryout business, which is less labor intensive. And for analysts at Cowan and BTIG, some top picks have been names that cater to a higher income demographic that may be less price sensitive. Names like Chipotle, Starbucks, and Sweetgreen. We'll see how they do this cycle. One more name to mention here is Wingstop. Its CEO says they're seeing meaningful deflation in wing prices. That's not a term you hear much these days. So that's another name to keep an eye on. Back over right. to you. Kate, thank you. Kate Rogers on the restaurant beat. Uh, Steve Grasso, do you like any of these or do you think everybody is not going to spend because a recession is on the way? <laughs> well, I think, I think if a recession's on the way, you're going to continue to buy meals for your family at McDonald's. Uh, and all of the lower end uh, price points. I think they'll, they'll all be safe. I think the biggest head scratcher for me was the performance on Yum China, where there's a zero COVID policy, but you're allowed to go out to a Yum facility. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand that one, but that one seems to have outperformed the entire space. Um, Chipotle was uh, an overshot, so I think there's still more downside room there. Stick to the lower price points. I think it's why make this more difficult than we have to. If people are going to have less money and higher food costs, stick to where you can get the most bang for your buck. You know, I like a good burrito blowout, Mel, and I'm sure the people here in the six o'clock hour come in to understand that as well. Extra and then chicken, almost no two hours into the show, I mean, you know, for me to say that is probably problematic. I'll say this: CMG has 33 percent. EPS growth trades at 30 times next year's number. I think this sell from 1900 to 1250 makes it actually a reasonable stock in this environment. Tim, Starbucks. Uh, I tell you what, I, I, I'm, I'm neutral on Starbucks. I'm mm. long the name. Uh, I'm very disappointed on their margin profile. I think their same store sales are, are under some pressure, at least given what they've done to pricing. I, I don't think they have the kind of pricing 
power that they've they've pushed through here. So we'll, we'll see. I think, you know, McDonald's and CMG have the pricing power. Um, Starbucks is, is I think, um, still operationally got a lot to work through. There's, there's, there are other names in the space that, you know, you look at Shaq and you look at some of the, uh, the pressures that they had on margin. You look at, uh, clearly it's a, it's a more expensive alternative in the fast food space. But I think um, you've righted a lot of those wrongs and some of those growth trends I think are worth paying for here. All right. Uh, don't go anywhere. We will be back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We're going to take your tweets, but uh, Karen's been digging into Twitter's suit against Elon Musk. Uh, the stock, by the way, is up about a percent still in the after hours. A couple of things caught your eye, Karen. Yes. So one of the things that they really want to get across is that uh, Elon Musk really wanted to do as friendly to the seller agreement as he could to entice them to just take his 5420. So they were able to negotiate a lot of things. No financing condition, no due diligence. He had to put up a bunch of money. They were allowed to hire and fire people as they wished. So a lot of the points that he's making to try to get out of this deal, they are refuting at every turn. And I think, as we suspected, this would read pretty well. His side will probably have a decent response. But for right now, they really seem to have... Twitter, the company, seems to really have the upper hand here. I think the stock should be up on this, but that's what I thought yesterday. Right. And I, I think it reads well. Right. I mean, when you think about today's um, regular session uh, gain, right, of 4%, 4 plus percent, plus the right. after hours, 1%. So you said yesterday that your long calls that expire Friday. Friday right. and next Friday. And next Friday. So right. 34 and 35. What, of do, you, each what do you do? Of each week, rather. Um, you know, I think they'll probably be up. Tomorrow, I'm going to sell some, mm -hmm. primarily because this is what I was here for, that we're going to see the next thing we're going to see is this, right. and that this will read well, and both of those things are happening. Who knows? It's Twitter. It's the craziest thing ever. Who knows what will happen next after that? So the stock mm -hmm. is up. Earnings are expected to be terrible. Mitch. What would you do? I would look at Tesla. I would be with Karen on Twitter for sure. I think the next, you know, 10 to 15 percent should be higher and she's going to do well with these. But how does Tesla, the stock perform? Steve talked about it in both hours. I think Tesla can go lower from here, can continue to sell off. Would you be inclined to short the stock off of the pop into earnings? It's a little too cute by half, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> well, you've been playing it pretty cute and pretty well so far. Uh, I'll, we'll, we'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Tim, Steve, Guy, Karen, it's been fun hanging out with you for an extra hour. Thank That's you out there for watching the special hour of Fast Money. Um, we will part tonight now because the news with Shepard Smith starts right now.